I'm going to be reading from John chapter 8, starting with verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you do the things which you have heard from your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as, as it is, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You were doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come from God. For I have not even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I speak the truth. Why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God for this reason. You do not hear me because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, do we, Did we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much. You are so highly exalted as the song sang this morning. The angels in heaven cover their eyes for your glory is so magnificent. And yet, you would care for us enough to send your Son. When we think of different forms of love, I can't think of anything harder than to send a Son to die. A good Son. A perfect one. To die for such scum as we were. Thank you so much for your love and for opening our eyes to see the truth to save us from our sins and from our condemnation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your suffering. We can't wait. We want your kingdom to come and we know the only reason you do wait is you are trying to draw more to you. Help us to be a part of your work. Help Tom this morning as he speaks and as you open the word to our hearts, help us to listen. In Jesus' name. I asked a couple of the guys to herd people in here and try to get y'all in here uh, on time this morning. And I, I, uh, I have a little exhortation, and it's a little exhortation. It's not anything earth-shattering. When I stand up here and preach, uh, on my best day, I feel like my words are just feeble pointers to His Word. 
That's, that's what I'm here for, is to point to His Word. But I think there is something to be said not only for, for fervent, biblically informed preaching, there's also something to be said for fervent, biblically informed hearing of the Word of God. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 8, it's very hard to read those chapters and come away thinking that the people who were hearing Ezra read from the law of the Lord and explain to give the sense of it were listening um, dispassionately. I got to preach the Gospel yesterday at what could only be described as an African-American Service, memorial service. That's culturally what it was. And I had a blast. And, and I want to tell you, it's, this is a very simple thing. I don't think cultural distinctions in the way we worship are all that important. But I do think it's good for the body of Christ for us to listen to the preaching of the Word with our hearts and with zeal. And when I hear men from this body come up to me after a message and say, Tom, man, I wanted to shout Amen. I, I say, why didn't you? Is there a rule? If there is, we need to mark it off the list. <laughs> this is not, I, I hope you understand, this is not me trying to be self-serving. Yeah, it's more fun, but... I believe it's good for the body when we listen with our whole hearts to preaching of the Word. And that's, that's my exhortation. That's it. I want to uh, <laughs> get into this amazing passage. Debbie laughs at me because I say that about every passage I preach. At home, she gets to hear, man, this is amazing. How do you think, how do you guys think Jesus would have, uh, have done in a class on conflict? Resolution. You ever think about that? Several years ago, I got to uh, I got to have a long conversation with a man whose career focus was teaching people in the workplace how to deal with resolving conflict. And there were a few bullet points to, to his strategy, and I remember a, a, I remember a handful of them that really stuck with me. One of them, he said, uh, he said, whenever there's a a misunderstanding about wording or whatever, always take the blame for it yourself. Don't ever cast blame on somebody else. And then the, the big ones were, he said, always look for shared values and objectives between you and your adversary in the, in the conflict. And then on the basis of those shared values and objectives, take another look at your points of difference and recognize that you're really on the same team. Turn your adversary into a teammate. Now, in our conflicts with fellow sinners, redeemed and otherwise, those, those points might have some real merit. But that's not the kind of conflict that this passage we're looking at today is talking about. Not by a long shot. And Jesus didn't do what that man recommended. I'm going to read you just a few things. You can evaluate how Jesus did according to those, those bullet points. Jesus said to these guys, why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because 
There is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. A little later, Jesus said, if I say to you that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Wow. Jesus really knew how to find shared values and objectives and how to turn his adversary into a teammate, right? Now, I think Jesus would have gotten an F in this guy's class. And I think that actually matters a whole lot. See, you and I are here on this earth to say the things that Jesus said and to do the things that Jesus did as His representatives. This passage is not about the kind of conflict that that guy was dealing with. This passage is about the the amazing chasm that separates the pitch black darkness from perfect light that has absolutely no fellowship with that darkness. And that, beloved, as, as those of you who belong to Christ, that is the conflict in which we are engaged every single day of our time on this earth as children of God. Every day. We need to pay careful attention to how Jesus handled <laughs> this conflict because we're here to do as He did and to say as He spoke, to speak as He spoke. The last verse of last week's passage, verse 30, says, As He, Jesus, spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. The first verse of this morning's passage, verse 31, says, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, if you abide in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. Now if you keep reading, it quickly becomes clear that at least some contingent of those Jews who had believed in Him had not believed in the real Him. There's some things going on with the Greek here that I would, could get into, but I'm gonna, I want to keep this real straightforward. The object of belief for some of these Jews was a low-budget knockoff of Jesus Christ. It was not the Christ, the Son of the living God. If it had been, the rest of this passage would not have unfolded as it does. Now, I don't take that to mean that verse 30 was not a progress, a legitimate progress report on the advancement of God's kingdom. I believe that Jesus spoke and many people who heard what He said came to believe. But the ones whose response is recorded in the rest of this chapter were believing in the wrong Jesus. By the sixth verse of this passage, Jesus had smoked them out as no different than the Jews who had been trying to kill him for at least a year. And I have to say that murderous malice against the real Jesus is a pretty solid indicator of unbelief. On Wednesday morning when we were talking about this passage, Bob said, I would call this passage God's paternity test. I knew right away that I was going to shamelessly steal that to be my title for this message. 
God's paternity test is every man's relationship to, tr- to the truth. Everything that is true of the redeemed sons of God is true of us only because it's true of the Son of God. So I want to start here in this passage with how God's paternity test applies to the perfect man. In John 8, verse 31, Jesus says, If you abide in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Then in verse 36, He identifies Himself as that truth. He says, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So the truth will make you free. The Son will make you free. That's because the Son is the truth. If you walk into, if you go on one of the tours and you walk into the main lobby of the original CIA building in Langley, Virginia, right after you go inside, if you turn to the left and look at the wall, you'll see an inscription. And that inscription says, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That inscription was commissioned by Alan Dulles, who was the fifth director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He was also the son of a Presbyterian minister. I believe he had good intentions in putting that inscription on that wall. But beloved, that's not what this verse is about. It's not about facts, very secret, hard-to-find facts, that will help guarantee the security of the United States of America. It's way more important than that. Way more important. This is about the truth whose name is Jesus Christ. In his high priestly prayer in chapter 17 of this gospel, Jesus makes a request of his Father on behalf of all who come to faith in him, his disciples and those who come to faith later. He says to his Father, Father, sanctify them in the truth. And then in the very next breath, he says, thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. See, lots of things are true in the sense that they correspond with reality. (laughs) But the Word of God is truth. It's the truth that sets men free from slavery to sin. And that truth is the written Word of God which speaks of Christ, and it is the Word who became flesh which is Christ. That's truth. John 14.6, you guys know it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus is the truth and Jesus speaks the truth. He reveals the truth of God to mankind. Here in John 8, verse 38, Jesus says, I speak the things which I have seen with My Father. Now that's a very interesting statement. We expect him to say, I speak the things I heard from my father or that my father told me to say. He says, I speak the things that I have seen with my father. That's because from eternity past, Jesus has seen everything that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit have seen. He was with the Father in the beginning. So he speaks to mankind the things that he has seen with his father. In verse 40, he says, I told you the truth which I heard from God. And then in verse 47, he says that the truth he came to speak was the very words of God. 
Jesus reveals the truth to man. Alright, so if God's paternity test is a man's relationship to the truth, how does Jesus do with the test? (laughs) He blows it off the charts. Because not only is He the truth, He reveals the truth. He proves Himself to be the Son of God. The Son of God. What about the rest of mankind? Well, Jesus tells us in this passage that there are two categories of mankind with regard to the truth. There are truth keepers and there are truth killers. First, let's look at the keepers of the truth. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, if you abide in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The word abide is an important and powerful word. It means to reside and remain. To reside and remain. It means to take up residence and stay. It's the same word that Jesus uses in verse 35 when He says the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. A slave to sin might have a close encounter with the Word of God, but as long as he's still a slave to sin, that's going to be a short visit. He's not going to take up residence and stay there. A son, on the other hand, abides. He resides and remains in the Word of truth. And beloved, the residence, the house of Jesus Christ is the heavenly dwelling place of God. As He tells us over and over in this Gospel, that's where He came from and that's where He's going. That's His residence. That's His abode. And if you're a child of God, His place of residence is your place of residence. It's the presence of His Father and your Father. Until you get to be physically in that place, Your place to abide in the presence of your Father is found in His Word. And that's what Jesus says here. See, that's where you draw near to God. That's where you behold God. That's where you meet with Him. That's where you hear from Him. And that's where you respond to Him. The greatest prayers that you will ever pray are the prayers that you offer up to God in response to what He has declared about Himself. As a redeemed child of God, the true Word that sets you free day by day from the lie, from the darkness, to dwell and remain in the astonishing light of God, that true Word is your place of residence. The keepers of the truth abide in the Word and they they hear the Word Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. That's talking about a whole lot more than some kind of passive, superficial exposure to the sound of God's words. It's talking about receiving and believing the truth of God. The keepers of the truth also treasure the truth. And I love this. Verse 51 says, those who, Jesus says, those who keep my word will never see death. A little later in verse 55, he says that he keeps his Father's Word. He keeps his Father's Word and we keep 
His Word. The Son's Word. The word keep in this passage is not the word for obey. That doesn't mean Christians don't have to obey God. It means that the word keep doesn't mean obey. What it does mean is keep watch over. Guard. Protect. Hold fast to. It's what you do with something that you consider to be extraordinarily valuable. If you discover hidden, very valuable treasure, you treasure it. That's what this word means. See, if you take Smeagol from Lord of the Rings and you change the ring to the Word of God and you get rid of the psychosis, you're in the ballpark of what this word is talking about. Those those who are the keepers of the truth are lovers of the Word. We treasure the Word because we recognize that it's treasure. What else do you do with treasure? You guard it. You protect it. You hold fast to it because it is of such extraordinary value. The keepers of the truth love the truth. Verse 42, Jesus said to these Jews, If God were your Father, you would love Me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. I have not come on My own initiative, but He sent Me. The children of God love the Son who is the truth and who reveals the truth. So how to, on that, based on that list of, of characteristics, how does God's paternity test turn out for the keepers of the truth? It shows them to be the sons of God. The rest of mankind are the killers of the truth. That doesn't mean they succeed in killing it. It means that that's their nature. The first response of those who are the killers of the truth is to deny their need for it. The Jews who were dueling with Jesus in this passage proved by the third verse of the passage that they're still slaves to sin. They were still in sin and not yet in son. When He declares to them that His true disciples abide in His Word and know the truth and that truth sets them free, how do they respond? They say, we are Abraham's offspring. We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? Now, if I had been there, I would have messed this all up at that point. I would have said something really snide like, have you guys completely forgotten about the 400 years that you made bricks under the whips of the Egyptians? Have you forgotten about the 70 years of your captivity in Babylon? You've never been enslaved to anyone? But Jesus knew better than to go there. These men weren't idiots. They were fools for rejecting Christ, but they weren't stupid. They were actually, in an amazing respect here, they were on the same page as Jesus because they were talking about spiritual slavery and spiritual freedom, and that's what He was talking about. Based on everything that their rabbis wrote, they were convinced that they were God's chosen people, not sinners like the Gentiles. They believed they were rightly related to God by covenant. 
Because they were physical descendants of Abraham, it was impossible for them to be spiritually enslaved to anyone. That response that Jesus smoked out from these self-assured Jews goes right to the heart of what separates the children of the truth from the children of the lie. A man or woman who will not acknowledge his slavery to sin cannot be saved until he does. A man who does not admit that he is spiritually dead apart from Christ along with all the rest of mankind destined for eternal condemnation, the condemnation he fully deserves, cannot be saved until he does admit that reality about his condition. These guys were nowhere near admitting that reality. Jesus knew their hearts better than they did, and He knew that they were so far from admitting that reality that they were ready to kill Him. After Jesus spoke here about sin and slavery, truth and freedom, and identified Himself as the, as the preeminent truth that frees, He launched into an indictment against these children of the father of lies. The very first charge in that indictment was you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And by the way, in the last verse of this chapter, they prove he was right. They wanted to kill the truth. And how better to kill the truth than to kill it at the source? They wanted to kill the one who proclaimed himself to be the truth incarnate. That was a fool's errand, of course, (laughs) but that's what they were bent on doing. The killers of the truth deny their need for the truth. They seek to kill the truth. They cannot hear the truth. They cannot hear the truth. Jesus said in verses 43 and 44, you cannot hear My Word. And then He explained why. He says, because you are of your father, the devil. And then he said, you do not believe the Son because I speak the truth. They can't hear the truth. They don't believe the truth. And they respond in all these ways to the truth because of who their Father is. And that's where Jesus goes in verse 44. There's just an amazing little... One of the most beautiful, terrible declarations about Satan in the whole Bible is right there in verse 44. Beautiful in terms of the, the, the amazing power of Jesus' words. He says of their father, He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in Him. Whenever He speaks a lie, He speaks from His own nature for He is a liar and He is the father of lies. The point of Jesus' indictment of their father The devil was to put the last nail in the coffin of these children of the liar. Like father, like sons. They do what he does. They're murderers and liars because their father is the preeminent murderer and the father of lies. Romans 1 says that unredeemed men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And it explicitly says that's not because they don't know the truth. It says 
Since the beginning of creation, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made so that men are without excuse. It's not that they don't know the truth, it's that they hate the truth. So they try to bury it. They try to kill it. So how do the children of the liar fare under God's paternity test? Well, they prove, they prove that they're children of the liar. See, their relationship with the truth is that they don't have a relationship with the truth. They prove themselves to be sons of the devil. They get a zero. At the end of this passage, Jesus reveals the outcome for those who keep, who treasure the truth. He says in verse 51, if anyone keeps My Word, he shall never see death. He shall never see death. That matches up perfectly with what He said back in chapter 5, verse 24. He said, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but his past has crossed over already out of death into life. And he already told us the outcome for those who reject the truth. John 8.24, he said, I say therefore to you that you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. There's a whole lot at stake here. Your response to the truth reveals whose child you are. And whose child you are determines how you will spend eternity. God commands every man, every woman, and every child to believe in, to trust in the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The One who reveals the truth and who is the truth incarnate in the flesh. Trust Him today. Don't trust your own tweaked imitation of Jesus Christ. Trust the One who is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For you who are the children of the Father of truth, I hope you've already been thinking as we've been looking at this passage about the ramifications of all this for how you and I live during our time on this earth. I think the first thing we should take away from this powerful passage is a right definition of truth. <laughs> truth is not the facts that you have to master to do your work as an accountant or an architect or an electrician or a painter. Those facts are important. That's not truth. Truth, as God defines it, is the revelation of the living God that will set your client, your boss, your coworker, your neighbor free from slavery to sin to dwell forever in the presence of the living God. That's truth. And that truth has a name. His name is Jesus. Whatever zeal you have for anything else that you come to know in this life, 
whether it's cars or technology or nutritional supplements or politics or economics or world hunger, should pale by comparison with your zeal for the truth. Do you ever catch Jesus offending people or arguing with anyone about any of that other stuff? Even once? No. We should learn something from that. Think about the things that we argue about. We also need to have firmly in mind all the time what Jesus tells us here about the nature of the conflict in which we're engaged every day. Beloved, I've said it before. We wake up every morning behind enemy lines. The prince of the power of the air and the airwaves is the devil. We need to understand what Jesus tells us about the nature of the conflict and about the nature of our adversary. See, we're not here to identify values and goals that we share with this godless world because there aren't And when it looks to us as if there are, we're dead wrong. In James 4, James has harsh words for some children of God. We know they're children of God because he says that they're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, children of the Father of truth don't get to play on the liar's side of the fence. And if you belong to God and you are happily playing over on that other side, you need to be assured God will not relent until He has turned your laughter into mourning. He will not relent until He has turned your rejoicing into gloom. He jealously desires the Spirit that He has made to dwell within you. And beloved, God's jealousy is a consuming fire. Not something to mess around with. Your closest friends cannot be children of the Father of lies. If you're of the light, you have nothing in common with the darkness and you have nothing in common with those who are of the darkness. Please understand, that does not mean that you and I shouldn't associate with the lost. We have to go to them. We have to be where they live. We have to be in their lives if we're going to expose the darkness to the light. No other way to do it. But our association with them must be just as intentional as Jesus' association with those who are of the darkness. It must come with a laser-like focus on our assignment to expose them to the truth so that they may come to know the truth and be freed from their slavery to sin. We're here with a sacred assignment, a glorious assignment. We are here to shine the light of the glory of God into the pitch black darkness of a world that knows nothing of that light. And, and beloved, that's, that's serious business. 
I've said this before, I'll say this again. The artificial bubble of cultural acceptability that we as believers in America have enjoyed for quite a long time is just that. Artificial. If we had always been doing what God put us on this earth and left us on this earth to do, that bubble wouldn't exist. As my brother Colin McDougall said, there is no place on earth where it's okay to preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ. No place. Because this is the darkness all around us. We're the light. We're the lampstand. We're the bearers of the light in that darkness. Whether that bubble is just shrinking really fast or has, has actually burst, <laughs> we should say good riddance and get on with the business of saving lost souls as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. If you're talking to a person of peace who seems to show genuine interest in the truth, you should assume that that means the Holy Spirit is generating that interest. You should be very straightforward about the truth with that person, but speak with gentleness and patience as you seek to lovingly introduce them to the soul introduce that soul to the one who is the truth. Much as Jesus did, by the way, with the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4. But if you're talking to a committed hater of the truth, a willing killer of the truth, you might need to take the gloves off at some point. You might need to point out to that person that his response to the truth proves him to be a child of the father of lies like Jesus did here. You might need to point out to him that he will die in his sins and spend an eternity separated from the presence of God and from the glory of His power unless he humbly turns in faith to Jesus. When God puts you face to face with someone who needs that approach, the approach Jesus took with these Jews, you can be pretty sure it won't be well received. You need to be ready for that. God might turn the heart of that, of that cold-hearted person. He does that a lot. But if He does, it'll probably happen later and you might not get to see it. If you look at the really forceful conflicts that Jesus had with people like these in the New Testament, He didn't get to see a lot of them turn in that conversation especially. You, you won't either. Be ready for that. That's the way this works. Most of the time, there won't be any repentance. That's because the way is narrow and few are those who enter by it the way into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Sometimes God's goal in your task for a given day is to use you to seal the condemnation of an enemy of Jesus Christ. And you know what? That glorifies God too. That is a very constructive work that you do on that day. Our calling is to be keepers of the truth. Our calling is to treasure the truth. Now you might be thinking, well, you said earlier, you pointed out that Jesus said Christians are keepers of the truth. So isn't that already settled? Well, throughout the New Testament, 
that which is true of our nature as redeemed sons of God is also commanded of us. Because God's not finished conforming us in practice to that which is true of us in our new man. So he says, you have put on the new man. And then he says, put on the new man. He says, my children abide in the truth. And then over and over and over in the Bible, he tells us to abide in the truth. All it takes for us to do that, beloved, is to come back to our place in the presence of God. And that is His incomparable, living, and active Word. Every time we do that, we come once again to know the truth. And that truth sets us free. And if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Your Father... Make us faithful sons of the Father of all truth. The beautiful light. Use us to make a whole lot of defectors from among the many sons of the Father of lies. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.